Welcome to episode 52 of the Mountainland Running Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Heiderscheidt from the University of Wisconsin Sports Medicine, and here with my co-host, Mountainland Physical Therapist, Jeremy Stoker. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, Brian. How are you? All right. Hanging in. Anything new? Uh, nothing too new. We have got a little cold, a little chilly the last few days, but hoping for a little warmer uh, for the weekend for the Halloween, you know? Are you guys going to have Halloween? I mean, are you, you going to celebrate it? Are they going to allow it in the, in the community? Or are they there's not been an down? official stance, so I think there's going to be a lot of people wondering what to do, and I think we're the same in our house. We don't know what to do. So uh, you, you strike me as the type of guy who would build like a Halloween catapult, you know, where you would set your candy and just launch it out to the kids in the street. Yeah, like those ones where they take the big pipe and they slide it down to them, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. I thought you were going to say catapult the kids into the street. Oh, well, that would work as well, potentially. Right. I think it all depends on how you celebrate Halloween. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, no, just it's been a little chilly, but nothing, nothing too crazy. How about for you? Yeah, about the same. Yep. Yeah, heading into the fall for sure. Yep. Um, so it, the summit again went really well this past year. Uh, thanks again to our, our uh, speakers who participated in the virtual format. Uh, we hope to get back in person next year in our usual haunts and uh, haunts. No, with Halloween, I had to I had to get that word in somehow with <laughs> Halloween. Uh, back into Park City, Utah. Uh, it's always a great event, and that is where we're planning to be uh, in 2021. So look for our announcements coming out. Uh, that'll give you the dates to hold for planning for that. Uh, as always, send questions and feedback to our podcast or any of our running content that we offer through Mountland at to podcast at mlrehab.com. Uh, we certainly value your opinions and thoughts and want to make sure we integrate that as best we can in our future episodes. All right, today we are joined by Dr. Max Paquette from the University of Memphis. Max is an associate professor in the College of Health Sciences director of the musculoskeletal analysis laboratory and biomechanist within the human performance center dr paquette's research interests are largely focused on lower limb joint mechanics with regards to injury risk reduction and performance improvement his primary research interests are focused on the effects of different footwear fatigue repetition altered techniques and training interventions for injury prevention and performance improvement in runners he has published over 50 peer-reviewed scientific articles and has contributed to numerous popular media articles and podcasts on the science of running Dr. Paquette is a member of the American College of Sports Medicine, the American Society for Biomechanics, and the International Society of Biomechanics. He also consults for high school, collegiate, and world-class track and field athletes and their coaches to optimize performance and reduce injury risks. Welcome, Max, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Brian and Jeremy. I'm excited to uh, have this chat with you guys. Yeah, this was good and obviously good timing given all the different things that are happening with respect to to wearables and whatnot. We I know we've got you've got a lot of work in that area with training loads in particular and it's something we want to chat on today. Yeah. Uh, I think one of your colleagues, Allison Gruber, do you work you worked with Allison? Yeah, yeah. I, I actually listened to you guys' podcast with Allison and uh, one of her PhD students uh, on one of my drives back from Flagstaff uh, months ago. And uh, yeah, we've been doing some work and uh, Allison has been awesome uh to work with she's done so much in running science and biomechanics that it's sort of a privilege to be able to just kind of call myself uh, one of her colleagues oh, yeah. yeah i hear you she's been fantastic and she was she was absolutely well received by our, our attendees at the, at the summit she was one of our presenters this past year very cool did a great job summarizing a lot of her work and everybody's work in the field and, and she definitely gave you a shout out as well on a lot of the work that you guys have collaborated oh, yeah. on 
Yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun to work with their students. Yeah. Although now that with the introduction you guys gave, I, I might shift my focus to candy and children catapulting. Uh, oh, there you go. That sounds, that sounds more exciting. <laughs> Maybe there's a way to create a new type of like a Spartan race that involves catapult yeah. and running where the runners get onto a catapult and are launched into the air yeah, and yeah. then have to continue to run after them. Yeah, it's, I think I'm in. Yeah, for sure. Let's <laughs> <Such> brainstorm. <laughs> Talk about the slope on the other end, where you land yeah, and how you get those feet yeah, going, yeah, you know? Exactly, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. You, guys, you guys are figuring it all out. If you can't figure out injury, cause them, right? That's there you go. Hey, I mean, everybody benefits from that in the end, I think, there except for the runners themselves. But. Right, sure. All right, Max, if you don't mind just giving our listeners a bit of a, a background, a little bit of overview on your background and your you know, the, the path you took to get to where you are with your research now. Sure, yeah. So I guess first, uh, I'm not a clinician or, or an engineer. I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm an exercise science uh, biomechanist. So it's just, I think it's important to make that, that distinction. I think biomechanists, biomechanists sometimes are to be only engineers but you know you can kind of come at this field from two directions really um all my interest in the running science research has come from being a runner myself and uh studying running uh as early as, as high school and in like you know sort of phys ed class uh, uh projects and all the way to you know, through university and summer research and then just my interest in in you know watching runners and what, what makes runners faster and more efficient and less injury prone and so on and so forth. And I just got lucky to kind of come across the field um, as an undergrad at the University of Guelph in Ontario and then uh, kind of moved on and continued with it until, uh, until now. That's sort of my, my path, I suppose, in a, in a nutshell. Huh. Yeah, that's great. And is, is it primarily distance runners that you work with or sprinters or where? Yeah, primarily distance runners, uh, middle distance sort of 800 and above, but I, you know, I've, I, uh, when I was an undergrad student uh, at the University of Guelph, I was coaching for a running club and I actually got my first coaching sort of certification in sprints and hurdles. Um, I was a steeplechaser um, nice. when I was an athlete. So I just loved the, the technical aspect, the biomechanics of hurdling. And so it was a nice little transition to coaching the very technical short sprints and hurdles events. So, yeah. That's great. So you work within the running area and obviously you're not, I should mention, obviously, as you mentioned through, or as I described to the bio, you're not just exclusive to running in terms of your research, but obviously that creates a, a large a portion of what you do. So within that area of research with running, can you talk us through a little bit about the, the, uh, the thread of your, of your running research? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I'm just, I would say, as you know, Brian, in the U.S., you know, research careers often tend to be massaged uh, in, in a direction that is that is going to lead to some funding, right? And that's sort of how we're kind of taught and trained as Ph.D. Uh, students. And then, uh, and that's certainly something that needs to happen uh, at a certain, to, to a certain extent. But I. I've really found uh, so much, so much more enjoyment in doing research that is uh, interesting to me and then to the people around me that I work with. And so for me, um, you know, anything running science, uh, you know, more specifically biomechanics um, and sort of, you know, movement measurements, but anything running science, uh, I've been involved in some research that are more nutrition based, uh, more physiology based. Um, it always comes down to running though. That's kind of a common theme. And, uh, recently I've tied in sort of aging with running mm -hmm. and I've had a lot of interest in, in the master runner. Um, so runners above 40, 50 years old, 
Um, been lucky to work with Rich Willie on some of these uh, projects and Paul DeVita as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, just anything running really. Uh, it sounds sort of, you know, very broad, but uh, anything from how does muscle soreness influence running mechanics? How does, you know, how, how do different types of footwear influence running mechanics? Um, fatigue is an interesting question. Uh, typically prolonged running intense or some maximal. Um, yeah, topics like that. Um, I've been I've been quite fascinating to me, and there's the interesting thing about running is that there's always something to to study further. Right? There's always something. Okay, we studied this in this particular condition, but what about what if we tweak this a little bit and then see how this changes? Or what about this population? Or you know this style of runner and so on and so forth. So it's there's just so much to keep studying. Yeah, kind of exciting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, well, we're going to talk today quite a bit about one of your papers that was recently published. Um, we, with Rich Willie, actually. So the fact that you brought him up, he's one of your co-authors on the paper. It's a commentary regarding training load, but I think it, you know, when I read it, obviously, and how you just described it, it's more than I think an article on training load. And I think for the clinicians, it was really good to expose them to really where we are with wearables, right? And and describes a bit of what where the gaps are and what we may want to try to take away from it, but where we still need to to shore up our knowledge and understanding on pieces of that. And then and that and under the context of how we need to be thinking about training load with runners really is a big catalyst for why we need to be moving in that direction, certainly. Sure. So how did you start moving toward the training load concepts? And, and you mentioned fatigue as being an area of interest. Is that what ultimately pushed you toward, how um, to, toward training load measures? Yeah, no, not really. I think that the training load related questions really came from my coaching background. Um, you know, it's, you, you spend enough time around coaches and athletes or at, at track meets or cross country meets, and you hear the question constantly like, Hey, how much, how much mileage do you run? Right. Or how many, how many miles a week do you run? And it seemed very uh, clear, very quickly that there was this obsession, like a literal obsession with mileage. And, and it's almost like people, instead of aiming for performance, people were, people are aiming for mileage and training. Like the, almost like the goal is to act, hit X amount of mileage and as a result, something good should happen from that, right? And I've noticed this for decades now. And um, I don't know if it was moving to the United States uh, from Canada in 2009 that sort of made this even more evident. But I really noticed that, especially at the high school uh, level in the U.S., like mileage is basically the holy grail of, of training metrics, right? Which, of course, now you kind of look around, uh, people want, want wearing fancy GPS watches with all sorts of metrics that come from those uh, watches. And Brian, I know you've done some work in, with wearables as well and, and measuring all sorts of biomechanical aspects of running. And so, you know, there's a lot more to running training than just how many arbitrary units of distance you cover each week, right? Um, so... Part of that was part of the reason for why this was uh, became interesting to us from the coaching standpoint. You know, how come you know a kid can, or a runner can run 50 miles a week and not get better, um, and how come somebody else can can run you know 30 miles a week and get really good and uh, so on and so forth? There's there's physiological reasons, but there's also biomechanical reasons. The other aspect was from research. If you look at the research, especially in uh, uh, running injury research, where it's more uh, 
epidemiology research that, that tries to find, you know, how much mileage is too much or so on and so forth. And if you look at that literature, it is so inconsistent. So some papers say that, you know, if you run 30 miles plus a week, you get injured. If you run 50 miles or plus, if you get injured, if you run less than 15 miles a week, you get injured. And so it's just all over the place. Basically, don't run is this conclusion. Any mileage you run, you're going to get injured. But then the question uh, sort of pops up. It's like, well, is, is that because mileage is not really the, the primary reason for injury? So what else then is involved, you know, that uh, with regards to uh, running training that we could quantify a bit more individually that could uh, maybe remove some of that fog in this sort of training-related uh, literature that tries to link training and injuries. So there's two aspects, right? So the coaching and then the research inconsistencies that we know. Yeah. Well, and, and training, like you mentioned, in terms of mileage, you know, it's, in a lot of ways, it seems like it could be used as an exposure variable rather than a load variable, right? Yeah. I mean, how, how much are you doing the activity, how much you expose to that potential yeah. risk yeah. Um, and not necessarily capture the load associated with it. And versus, you know, again, from the coach, and I, and I don't have a good background on coaching. Jeremy can probably speak to this more with his credentialing and his, his bit of coaching background as well. More on the sense of, you know, is is mileage captured because it's convenient or is it captured because it's really thought to contain that that level of information well certainly like like you said exposure to something you know the more you do to a certain extent you, you know you're going to get a bit better at it right so the idea with mileage i think is it's two reasons i think yeah there is evidence of doing more vo training volume which can be quantified with mileage or distance and, uh, and or duration or minutes or hours of, of exposure. Um, and many coaches also use duration instead of mileage for, track, for tracking training. And then the other um, reason also is culture, right? I mean, if you look at, like if, if you talk to any coach that's been coaching for more than 20, 30 years, um, and you ask them why they use mileage, and, and likely the answer is, well, I, 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 know, I know about mileage, right? And so to your point, Brian, I think it's convenient, right? It's convenient and people are comfortable with it. Um, an argument I hear a lot is that, well, we race a certain distance, so, you know, we got to train that distance. And that's 100% true with long distances, like marathon and above where, yeah, you body, you have to be able to run 26.2 miles or 50 miles or 100 miles if you're an ultra marathoner. But for a mile, right? 1500 or half a mile, even 800 in high school, for example, you're only trying to cover two laps or four laps of the track. So quantifying how much distance you cover on, on every run is, it, you know, it's, it's difficult to see it as an important aspect. There's so many more important aspects of training that, that are valuable. So, um, so I've, I've heard all arguments and, and, and just to be clear, I think, uh, for clinicians and coaches, it's not that prescribing distance is a bad thing, you know, prescribing distance is objective. It's simple. And you'd say, go run, you know, 5k or five miles easy. Everybody can do that. If you have a GPS watch, I would argue that prescribing minutes is a lot easier because you just go, go run 45 minutes or go run 20 minutes or whatever. We talked about that a little bit in the commentary. Um, but the, the point here in this commentary is more about um, how we quantify, how we monitor training, um, the training response. So the, the argument is that you can prescribe training distance all you want, but then it's important to consider 
how the athletes are responding to that to that training. And that's the difference between what we are discussing in this commentary versus what people sort of complain about. Oh well, you know, we you how else can you you know prescribe training? I said, like, no, well, we're not arguing about prescribed prescription. You can prescribe miles if you want, but we're talking about considering how you monitor it after the fact. Got it. So yeah. just again for our listeners, the 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 commentary that we're referring to is in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy published earlier this year. In fact, actually this month's issue from October, uh, moving beyond weekly distance, optimizing quantification of training load in runners. Uh, so again, that's the October issue of JOSPT and Max is the lead author on it. Um, so with the, within the commentary in terms of recovery, this is something that we've worked with our coaches here at University of Wisconsin uh, in a variety of sports and certainly in the in, uh, cross country is trying to capture exactly that recovery and what information that they're, they're getting from the athletes. And so, you know, a lot of coaches that at least I'm aware of, you know, will try to go beyond mileage and even to the point of, of really getting detailed, like heart rate information on them and being yeah. very prescriptive about recovery from heart rate. Whereas other coaches will dismiss that as being too prescriptive and too regimented and rigid and needing to consider other factors. So, so maybe just set the stage a little bit for our listeners as to what, what other variables do we need to be thinking about to better understand recovery in terms of uh, training load? Sure. So, uh, you know, just on the point of, of some coaches that do use things outside of mileage, I think, I think that's, that's important to make sure people understand that I'm not, we're not saying that all coaches, you know, use only mileage. I think. Sure. Some of the best coaches, uh, you know, will use mileage, but also will use common sense, uh, which is something that we tend to forget. You know, when you get too caught up into anything, doesn't have to be mileage, but anything else like heart rate, sometimes we lose track of the human being behind the numbers. And so, you know, uh, the best coaches, uh, you know, might collect some data, but ultimately the best coaches are constantly observing and monitoring um, their athletes, whether it's... Uh, observing signs of fatigue that they know that are specific for an athlete, right? Um, just how they move. You know, it's hard to quantify how a person moves with the naked eye, but if you've been coaching an athlete for five years and you know what they look like when they're fresh and feeling good and peppy, all of a sudden their demeanor change changes and they move differently. That's monitoring right there. So in this commentary, though, we're... we're um, we're more focusing with the general population, right? So I think the elite level coach uh, has their own, has, they, they have their own way of monitoring training for their athletes. They typically coach a smaller size, uh, smaller population, smaller number of athletes at a time. So they can they have these very specific things they can monitor visually um, or perceptually. With the rest of us though, when you know, you might work with people online or you might work with a group of 40 kids or things like that. It's difficult sometimes to quantify these things. So here we make a case that if all you do is look at distance, right? So we'll use mileage here because you know we're in the US and mileage is typically the, the value that's or the, the unit that's used. Um, you're making the assumption that every mile that a person runs uh, means the same thing for everybody else on your team, basically. Okay. Um, and so obviously that's not, that's not a, a, an accurate assumption to make. So let's say you have a team of high school runners, you've got, you know, Jimmy and John, and uh, they're running, both running 40 miles. 
well, the assumption that, you know, Jimmy's 40 miles is equal to Johnny's 40 miles uh, is just going to lead to some some issues. So, yeah, I think comparing uh, mileage between people is very difficult to do. Um, and as you guys know, you know, if someone takes, you know, 195 steps a minute and someone takes 160 steps a minute, when if you're looking at 35 steps a minute difference over the course of a, you know, 50 mile week, that's thousands of steps last for one runner, one runner than the other. So, we in in the commentary we we mentioned that it might be important to consider things like you know a step count for example and then um, instead of miles because ultimately if you think about you know external loads or external stresses being applied to the body those external stresses in running come from steps right so whenever your foot collides with the ground um, the the force that comes from the ground and being applied to your foot is the mechanical stress that we have to deal with. And so if you assume that every mile is the same among people, you're missing that, you know, individuality in the biomechanics of each runner. So we make a couple of points as to how we could use step count, but then you could go a step further and also sort of estimate, you know, force per step and then use that as an external metric of training as opposed to just distance, basically. Um, we also make a case for what I just described, even within a person. So I mentioned Johnny versus Jimmy earlier, but even within a person, if you take a person and you say, you know, three days in a row, you're going to run 10K, right, or 6.2 miles. But uh, on the first day, you know, you might feel really, really good because, you know, you've had a rest day or something. Uh, on the second day, you might feel really bad because you didn't sleep very well or because you didn't eat well or because your dog passed away or something like that. And then on the third day, you're doing a, a track session on the, uh, you know, on the track, some intervals worth 10K of, of intervals, and maybe you're in spikes or something like that, right? So we make some comparisons in these different scenarios. You know, all three sessions are 10 kilometers, but the, the biomechanical implications of that and the physiological implications of that are vastly different, right, uh, among the three sessions. So, you know, I, I think it's important to... The point is that it's important to consider all the various factors that are involved. And we, we don't have to be, you know, biomechanics PhDs to assess these things. Um, and I think that's why, that's why I love how running is so simple. And you can do this, you know, fairly simply without fancy, uh, very fancy equipment. Um, but it just, it just allows coaches and even clinicians to go beyond just thinking about a very simple metric and applying that to everyone where you can make it a little more individual that might make the difference in monitoring return to running after injury, for example, or, or something like that. You know, I think you make a really good distinction throughout your commentary. And I think this is critical of, of the, the difference between external load and internal tissue load. Yeah. Um, and some of our, our, our past guests on the podcast have done a really nice job for that as well. Really, you know, clearly showing that, you know, what we think of as some common surrogate measures of external load, whether, you know, even if it's, even, even if it's ground reaction forces or tibial right. shock, trying to take those and say, well, is that actually tibial bone load right. or is it you know is it achilles tendon strain uh clearly there's a whole nother level that, that that's required to get to that yep exactly and i think there's there's some there's been some good strides made um i love that term when you talk about running research uh, <laughs> there's been some good strides made in this in this field you know i think carl zellick at, at vanderbilt and uh, a few of his phd students have done some nice work now where you combine information from various sensors you can then 
come up with some models using using machine learning techniques where you can uh, estimate uh, bone damage uh, pretty well. Um, you know, I think I think uh, you know Carl's group is, is doing a great job in that area. There's other good groups in the world that, that are doing the same thing. And to me, it always comes down to um, whatever techniques or whatever methods or instruments are going to end up being useful. It will always come down to, given that running is such a simple activity, so enjoyable, where you can just put your shoes on and go out the door and do it. We'll always have to make sure that whatever it is that we do that we measure doesn't take that away from from people, right? So, um, at the elite level, you know, it it often comes down to sponsorship and money. So, whoever you know, whoever's offering more money, basically, will 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 have the athletes wear the, the, the stuff, right? So, I can tell you how how many wearable companies reach out to the, some of the best athletes in the world to to be you know sponsored by them or or to have them wear their stuff, and ultimately it goes well. You gonna pay me? Right? I mean, that's that's really kind of what it is. So there's a lot of factors outside of science and biomechanics that are at play here. Um, you know, the psychological aspect of it, the economics of it at the higher level, um, it becomes interesting. And then there's also uh, some, you know, rules in terms of competition um, that, that need to be considered also. So um, I, I, again, I, I think what Carl and, and other groups are doing is fantastic and uh, it's moving the needle in the right direction for sure. Yeah. And I think that's interesting too, because that also then in your commentary, there seems to be like almost a, uh, on the opposite side of it, right? You've got this, uh, on the one end, you've got this, this uh, aggressive new technology to measure all of these small metrics that, uh, that we were interested in. And then the opposite end is more of a much global measure of, of rating uh, of perceived exertion, RPE. Yeah. And it's like you, but the value of the RPE has been uh, established in a number of other aspects with yeah. sports sciences and used sure. repeatedly. So, can you describe how you factor RPE into training load? Yeah, sure. So, uh, rate of perceived exertion, as you mentioned, has been used for decades. I mean, early 60s, I mean, before the early 60s, but. Um, you know, it was, it's, it's been used and practiced quite a bit in team sports um, and cycling a little bit, although cycling now is dominated by wattage, uh, but, you know, use a lot in team sports. Um, and in running, a lot of coaches actually use RPE in various ways. Um, but um, I think it's important to understand how it's used and limitations of it. Um, ultimately, it comes down to uh, assessing how an athlete feels uh following a session and so session rpe is basically used uh with with duration of a session so if you if you have a session that lasts 50 minutes and an athlete rates their uh perceived effort as being a five out of ten then to get uh, a training load um for that session you would multiply the duration 50 minutes times the rate of perceived effort five right so in this case you would get a training load score of 250 and those are obviously arbitrary units because you know a unitless measure of uh, of rpe times minutes is arbitrary so uh, that would be how we would measure training load now it's important to understand that in terms of people say well how does that apply to injury risk well it doesn't really because all you're doing here is you're you're trying to quantify the um, the training stress ultimately. So training load is uh, is basically it's it's how we assess training stress. Okay, so duration times RPE gives you this global value for the session. 
uh, an RPE doesn't really tell you about injury. It just tells you about effort. Um, but it's better than just saying I ran 50 minutes because I could run five 50 minute sessions and have vastly different outcomes for each session. So the RPE tells you a bit about that outcome. And you could also argue that, oh, well, why, why don't we just use pace, right? Because then you have pace and minutes and that's distance. So let's just use distance. Well, <laughs> we go back to square one, right? Um, it's important to know that pace isn't really a measure of intensity all the time, especially at, at, at easy efforts, right? So in running typically, so for some, for some nomenclature here, you know, runners will know terms like easy runs, you know, workouts, long runs, or recovery runs would be easy runs. And so during easy runs, if you're dealing with an athlete who's really fit and high level, you know, seven minute um, uh, per mile might be a pretty easy pace. Um, but seven minute per mile pace might not mean the same thing on day one and day two again. So it's always about comparing within a person and, and how, you know, things change day to day. So the RPE combination with uh, duration is a nice measure of load um, from a, from a training stress standpoint. So you can tell you how to tell us how the athletes are responding to training. Um, and RPE is, is sort of an all encompassing measure where yes, it's effort, but it also includes things like, other factors like sleep and nutrition and, and other, you know, life stresses. So it, it includes all these various things in your life that can affect how you feel when you run. Um, you know, it's not always training related. I think that's also important for clinicians to understand. I know the, the good clinicians understand this, but, you know, effort and being tired and not recovering is not just about the exercise and the training and the rehab it's other stuff right financial stress sleep family stress other things like that so more psychological aspect um and i think rpe does uh, capture that pretty well do you think it captures it enough where you wouldn't necessarily need to have some other measure of sleep quality sleep duration uh body stress body pain those other those other sort of likert scale measures that are oftentimes captured yeah, I, I, I think, I think if you're if you're monitoring things consistently and over time, and you start getting trends of, okay, well, you, you know everything's going well, and all of a sudden you know you get this massive increase in training load due to an increase in RPE, then you know I I, I would be confident in saying that. Yeah, likely if you've been sleeping well for or poorly for a few days and, and, you know, this run is supposed to be very easy, you're clearly not recovering. And as a result, your effort is so high. So indirectly, yes, I, I, I don't know that there's any uh, harm in measuring, um, you know, sleep quality, for example, mm -hmm. but I do think that RPE will capture that. It's funny because I, I have this, this kind of fancy polar watch. And I don't use it to run. I just, I use it to I wear it around, but I also wear it to sleep and I like to track my sleep this way. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you like when I, when it says you slept poorly, I'm like, Oh, thanks watch. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I really needed that this morning. Um, when it says I've slept poorly, I could tell you that, you know, when I go for runs that day, when I do anything strenuous those days, like I can feel it, especially if it's uh, if it's like a two or three day trend where I haven't slept well, like he, mm -hmm. I, I, I would, I would, um, I, I would easily rate, you know, those efforts much higher than they should be kind of thing. Yeah. And there's a lot of good research on this and I'm not, I haven't, we haven't sort of, uh, uh, dove that deeply into that, but there's a lot of research just on RPE and other aspects of, uh, of recovery. 
So Max, like thinking on the clinician standpoint of things, like if I've got a patient who's coming in and we're trying to reintroduce them back to running. So, you know, they're to a point now where tissues are fairly stable and ready to kind of attenuate some load. Um, how do I, I mean, typically because of the culture and because of the easiness so mileage is, or, or minutes are very easy to prescribe. But if I'm going to start adding in this RPE into my prescription, what are some of your suggestions on, uh, on how and what and, and, and how does that dialogue occur in the clinic? Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll say this. I don't think that when you're when the goal is return to running after injury, I'm not sure RPE matters that much, honestly. Fair. Uh, yeah. Mostly because you're not going to be doing hard efforts likely right off the bat. So you're just doing easy stuff. So And you're more worried at this point with symptoms and tissue loads, right? As opposed to overall, as Brian said, overall load or overall effort. So I, 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 so to answer quickly, I would say I wouldn't bother with RPE then. Um, I would focus more on, you know, if you're going to prescribe mileage, okay, run one mile today or, or you know, or minutes even, run, you know, a minute on, a minute off or whatever it might be. Um, I would consider what that minute or that mile means for that patient. Um, you know, I know, you know, a lot of clinicians do measurements in lab or in clinic, like, What's their average cadence? You know, what are, what, you know, do they run on their forefeet, on their, on their heels, so on and so forth. And depending on the injury, of course, you can kind of factor all that in and say, well, I don't think given your injury, let's say it's an Achilles tendinopathy of some sort and they're a forefoot striker and they have a slow cadence, for example, right? Something like that. Well, I probably wouldn't, I would, I would reconsider the mile. I might say, okay, let's start with a half a mile, right? Just because a mile for them is not going to be equal to the same thing from a tissue load standpoint than somebody else who's maybe a sort of high cadence, um, you know, uh, sort of flat footed runner um, with another, you know, issue like a glute meat tendinopathy or something like that. Right. So I, I think it's important to consider those specific biomechanical aspects and, and, and to quantify each mile or each minute as opposed to as opposed to rpe in this case you know and i think that's where a lot of people say well you only ran a mile at a time it's like yeah but in that mile might have taken 10 minutes right if it's a maybe it's a slower person and your cadence is 190 so you're in you're not only are you running for longer you're taking more steps so those 10 minutes for that mile you know might be something like i don't know how you know let's say 2000 steps or whatever. Um, so those are things that I would worry more about from a return to running standpoint. When you get to a point where you're more concerned with how they're responding to their training from a physiological standpoint, that's when I think the RPE comes in handy is, is knowing that, you know, you might assign 50 miles that week and you might assign 50 miles for the next three weeks. And the idea is that these, these three weeks in a row should be fairly easy but yet you, what you might find is that the first week was easy, right? Is normal, at least where they, the athlete typically is from a training load standpoint. Same with the second uh, week. And the third week, somehow, your training load is like 30 40% higher. And you wouldn't have picked that up by only using mileage because it was all 50 miles, right? But now you included RPE in there by multiplying to the daily duration. And now you're seeing that because the RPE has gone up, uh, and maybe they've, maybe they've actually slowed down as well. So if you slow down and run the same miles, if you're running for longer, and then if you're slowing down, it's probably because you're tired, so your RPE goes up. <laughs> 
So now you've got 50 miles, but maybe like 30% more minutes and then 30, 40% more training load. So despite seeing 50 miles, 50 miles, 50 miles, it's not the same. Yeah. And that's where coaches make mistakes. We're like, oh, that was three easy weeks. Let's go up to 80 miles now. Oops. That last one, though, wasn't quite what you thought it was. Right? Yeah. Yeah, like so that's the value from a training standpoint. So an example for that, Max, if I can tie back a little bit is, um, you know, when we talk about trying to return a runner to running uh, after injury, not necessarily in the first month, let's say they are now back to running continuously 30, 40 minutes at a time. Let's say they're back to about 50% of their pre-injury training volume. And then now the recommendations we start to apply, be increase their running volume of say 10 to 20% per week based on some of Neil Rasmussen's uh, uh, or sorry, Rasmus Nielsen's work. Um, would there, would you factor RPE into it now at when they're at that part of that recovery process? Absolutely. Cause I think personally, I, you know, I think Rasmus's research is what I was mentioning a bit earlier where it's all over the place, not, not saying their research is, but their findings are Yeah. Right? depending on the population, depending right. on who the runners are, so on and so forth. You know, the, the results are never the same. So, I think that's I think that's why when you say oh you know the ten percent rule doesn't work well it doesn't work for mileage yeah. that's for sure but maybe it works for a more sensitive measure of training load or training stress right and so we don't know what that is and that should be individual like if the three of us are training together and somehow uh, our coach says you know increase your volume this amount and that really kicks my butt and then so my my RPE will probably go up and then my but then I'm fine I don't get hurt somehow but one of you might get hurt even though the increase is small which is why i think the research is a bit misleading there because obviously like we're missing so much right and and, and rasmus's group talks about these is etiology frameworks and how we need to know what's happening at the tissue level what can these tissues handle you know what's the actual stress on the tissue um and that's been the sort of the perpetual problem, right? And in, in, in injury research is like, how do we measure these things? And what is tissue capacity? Is it, you know, muscle strength or tendon, tendon strength in clinic that we can somehow measure with dynamometers or some, you know, consistent test? Or does it actually mean that if you're stronger with a calf raise or an isometric hold of some sort, like, does that mean that your tissue can handle more? That's tough to say. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. You're right. And that's one thing, that I, I, again, I think you bring, you're doing nicely with it, with the commentaries, describe some of the idea of where everybody would like to go, right? Everybody would love to know that information, yeah. but the reality is we are very, very far away from <laughs> knowing I that agree, information. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I, I wake up and uh, after uh, this best dream ever, where I have this handheld phone-like device that you can scan <laughs> a runner before the run. Like, okay, good to go. Everything's healthy. You know what I mean? Um, that would be that would be the, uh, the device that we need to develop. I, I think they had that in the Star Trek series. Yeah, where oh, they just yeah, wave that right. over people. Star Trek and always instantly diagnose everything out. Well, <laughs> amazing. So what what other, what other kind of cool research you have going on, Max? What's what's coming down the line? Yeah, so uh, you know we've we've moved. Uh, like I said, I moved a lot with towards like older runner research, and uh, I've had a couple of really outstanding master students. I've done some nice work there. Um, and, uh, one of the, we have two projects that are starting up here soon. One of them is about, uh, those fancy shoes or not the fancy shoes, but manipulating, uh, bending stiffness in shoes to see how that influences things in, in master runners, knowing the limitations that older runners have in terms of, uh, 
plantar flexor propulsive function and so on and so forth, given that the shoes seem to influence these, influence these, uh, these uh, structures in the body, um, we might see some differences in terms of the outcomes um, by, by wearing stiffer shoes using carbon fiber inserts. So that's an interesting project that's that's about to start pending IRB approval. I think it's tough for most scientists right now with humans, uh, re, uh, human subject uh, research is that, you know, the IRB is a little bit slower because, you know, there's a lot of problems uh, and a lot of um, uncertainties around, especially yeah. in older you know, populations. And then the other one is uh, is a training is a strength training study. Um, so we're going to be looking at more uh, morphological characteristics uh, and, and uh, function of plantar flexors. An Achilles tendon in older runners uh, following uh, uh, eight weeks of uh, the various types of strength training programs. So we have sort of an endurance-based, a more heavy strength type program, and then a, um, a more sort of dynamic or sort of, sort of more bouncy, if you will, like slight yeah. light, light jumps and more form-based sort of light plyos um, in, in runners uh, over 50. So yeah. it'll be, we've talked about how strength is so important in older runners, but we don't really know, right? Um, mm -hmm. A lot of these assumptions are made based on a young population. So are, you know, muscular or uh, muscular tendinous tissues in older adults, are, are they as adaptable as they are in young runners? So Right. ultimately the question yeah and, and what what strength training modalities might be more optimal for them yeah so is the idea being that if if for example you put them on a uh, and i'm going to oversimplify your work so uh, i apologize in advance no, no worries. yeah but if you're doing say for example uh calf load work and you strengthen the plantar flexors potentially stiffen the achilles more so in the in the older runners because many yeah. times it shifts toward a, a compliance with right. age and so if those characteristics return the idea might be that they're getting better ankle plantar flexion power generation during running and they're potentially higher speed. Sure. So that would be, uh, you know, I think the mechanism for the overall goal, I think the overall goal for me at this point is enjoyment is, you know, <laughs> is making, making Fair older enough. runners run again, basically. But you're um, a biomechanist, Max. Enjoyment yeah. doesn't factor into the No, equation. for sure. Not totally. So that's, we're definitely, that's one of the important dependent variables. Uh, we're ultimately looking at, you know, perceived effort, uh, at certain paces and then economy as well. The right. idea that, you know, if economy is lower, obviously, uh, or you would hypothesize that then effort would also be lower because it's less costly and less, you know, uh, uh, tedious, if you will, or, or demanding. So ultimately that's the overarching aim. And then, you know, we look at the mechanisms as to why that is, you know, is it tendon stiffness? Is it, is it, you know, power at the, at the planner for the, uh, generated by the planner flexors and, you know, stiffness and things like that. So that's ultimately the idea. Yeah, it's actually that that work is really exciting. Um, I have a really outstanding grad student, uh, Zoe Kearns, who was at the University of Oregon with Mike Hahn uh, before mm -hmm. and, and now is uh, is working in our, in our lab. And so it's uh, Great. really excited for that. Yeah, oh, that's outstanding. Good stuff. Well, once you've got that underway under wraps and you've got some of your preliminary data, we'll definitely love to get you back on. And so you can share some of those findings. Yeah, hopefully it's it's uh, within a, a fairly reasonable timeline. We have really no idea, but we'll see, I guess. Are you guys back in, uh, in lab a little bit, Brian? Or? We are. Yeah, we're back rolling, although, again, not not uh, completely smoothly. It's there's definitely yeah. some caveats along the way. But sure. We're, we're, we're trying to get things up and moving. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Max, thank you. This was a really great conversation. I appreciate the time and the insights into the work you guys are doing and keep up the good stuff. I appreciate it. Enjoyed yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, it, Jeremy. Thanks, Brian. Yep. Thank you.
Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. On behalf of my co-host, Jeremy Stoker, we'd like to thank you for tuning in. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, the Mountain Lion Running Summit for 2021 is around the corner, so keep an eye out for any announcements that may be coming down the line so you can hold the date. Uh, check out uh, uh, all those resources at summit.mlrehab.com regarding updates on the summit. And as always, you can find more information on all of the running medicine resources offered by Mountland Physical Therapy at mlrehab.com run. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.